0: Jason Acuña was born in Pisa, Italy, in 1973, and grew up in California. Upon arrival, it was apparent that he was different. Jason's arms and legs were shorter than they should have been for his body size, and as he got older, this difference in limb length became more apparent. Jason had dwarfism, caused by a hereditary condition called achondroplasia. This condition had no effect on his mental faculties, but did mean that he grew no taller than four foot four. This didn't stop Jason from doing what he wanted, though but it did mean that some adjustments would have to be made. Most noticeably, he rode a miniature skateboard to allow him to do tricks like the other kids at the park. This love of skateboarding would carry over to his job as the subscription manager for the skateboarding magazine Big Brother. Alongside allowing him to stay immersed in the world of skateboarding and to seek work as a stunt performer, this job would also connect Jason with his first big break. This big break would involve Jason taking on the stage name Wee Man and becoming a member of the cast of Jackass. His antics would include skateboarding as an Oompa kicking himself in the head, and doing deep knee bends while holding basketball star Shaquille O'Neal on his back. What would follow was a successful film career. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Antony.
1: And I'm Juliet. We Man!
0: Yeah, we Man. I, I love that we get to talk about this. I love him. He's so much fun.
1: <laughs> well, it's a really cool story. So I guess we're talking about dwarfism?
0: We're talking about achondroplasia, which is a form of short-limbed dwarfism.
1: There's different kinds of dwarfism?
0: Yes. So achondroplasia is the most common kind, uh, and it's a genetic form of dwarfism. So be known as a genetic anomaly. This This isn't a disease of any sort or anything like that. It's more like a quirk in our genes. But achondroplasia is the most common type, which you typically have short limbs in proportion to the rest of your body. Uh, There are other types of dwarfism that can be brought on by sometimes chemicals or other illnesses causing growth issues, but there is another hereditary dwarfism known as primordial dwarfism, which is very rare, where a person is very, very short compared to the average individual, and everything is in proportion for their height. So their head is smaller, their limbs are smaller, their torso is smaller, and Quite often as a result, they have a higher-pitched voice due to having a smaller voice box.
1: Oh, okay. In the type we're discussing today, it's about the the limbs end up out of proportion with the rest of the body.
0: That's the most noticeable trait, yeah.
1: Okay, what's the correct terminology
0: here? Okay, so that's, that's fair. So, individuals who have dwarfism prefer to be referred to as little people. Okay. Obviously, if you know the individual, use their name. But yes, uh, so most of the time we will be trying to use the term little people or I will be mentioning the condition achondroplasia in this episode.
1: Okay, and dwarfism is the medical term for this group of conditions?
0: Yes, so dwarfism is where someone is four foot ten or below in height. Okay and it could be for a whole range of reasons.
1: Makes sense. Okay, so let's get into it. Tell me about achondroplasia. Of
0: course. So, uh, as I said, achondroplasia is a form of short-limbed dwarfism, and it's the most common form of dwarfism, with actually being 70% of all known cases of dwarfism.
1: Ooh, that's a very high percent. Mm-hmm.
0: And the symptoms include, unsurprisingly, short arms and legs, as I've already called it short-limbed dwarfism, Uh, an enlarged head, prominent forehead, uh, bow legs can be quite common, which can make walking difficult at times, Uh, kyphosis, which is a bend in the lower region of the spine.
1: Like scoliosis?
0: Yes, just a different region is affected, and it has other problems associated with it. Okay. Uh, Short fingers and toes with uh, what's called trident hands.
1: What does that mean?
0: Okay, so it means that the uh, the fingers the fingers are kind of sticking together in a way that the hand forms a three pronged shape rather than fanning out as you would typically expect.
1: Okay, so the way you're gesturing to me is like Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Okay, so so achondroplasia may change the shape of your hands a little bit.
0: Yes, people who have achondroplasia often. Uh, experience frequent ear infections as well. And it's probably due to the different shaping of the head. And uh, sleep apnea can also be an issue because of that shaping the head, but also sometimes there can be some repressed growth within the rib cage itself, which makes breathing more difficult. So during night, sometimes breathing stops intermittently.
1: Ah, huh. okay. So all of this kind of adds up into somebody being very below average height, having quite short limbs. And what does this mean for their day-to-day life?
0: Uh, So this would be uh, very much an accessibility issue most of the time. Uh, Thankfully, people with achondroplasia do not have an affected life expectancy, typically. Yay! And I looked into this because I thought, you know, I wanted to know when they said, you know, life expectancy isn't affected... Who's the oldest living little person? Or, you know, who's the longest living uh, little person? And I found uh, a woman named Susanna Bacoyne, who was the longest living little person who died at the age of 105 years old. Wow. And it wasn't known if she had achondroplasia, but she was a tightrope walker for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. So she's an interesting character. Wow. And the second oldest little person who did have achondroplasia Died at the age of 99 and was a Holocaust survivor.
1: Whoa. So that went from quite happy to, uh, (laughs) ah, quite quickly. Well,
0: uh, as you're going to see later, cultures have taken differing approaches to how they view little people. I thought it would also be worth noting that, because these symptoms are quite apparent, diagnosis is fairly straightforward in general. So what do you think someone would do to diagnose achondroplasia?
1: Well, I guess it, it depends. So it's a genetic condition because we're covering it. So I guess you might be able to use the same tests you talk about for the others of checking the amniotic fluid.
0: Yeah, you could do that.
1: And otherwise, I guess it depends. when When do the short limbs show up in development?
0: Uh, They actually show up in utero.
1: Oh, so you'd be able to see it
0: when you get a scan. Yeah, there are cases where you can diagnose someone with achondroplasia via ultrasound. Oh. Uh, Otherwise, most patients are typically diagnosed during infancy. Just to give a bit of time just to make sure that people are sure of the diagnosis and that they want to make sure it wasn't just something they saw in the ultrasound that was a little off. But uh, the symptoms are the main way that uh, achondroplasia is diagnosed, alongside taking measurements of the skull. Because of that pronounced forehead and the enlarged head, there are um, differences in the proportions of the skull that that are a clear indicator of achondroplasia. Oh, cool. So, otherwise, uh, I thought I'd mention there are some therapies that are offered for people with achondroplasia.
1: Like treatments? I presume there's no cures.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's not, there's not a uh, in quotes cure, and I don't think anyone's looking to cure this. They don't view it as an illness, so there's not a cure because there's nothing to cure. But there are treatments and therapies to make little people's lives a little bit easier. So growth hormone therapy is one option, but it doesn't last. It's not effective for very long. So it's only like one or two years that growth therapy will actually have any effect on someone taking it. With achondroplasia
1: So you can't just give somebody Growth hormone their whole life Until they Keep, so that they keep getting Taller? No No, that's not how it works
0: No, no. it it certainly doesn't work that way With people with achondroplasia Um, But it
1: does work for a little bit?
0: Yeah, yeah Not very long though If, If you think about how long we spend Growing One or two years is not much so you
1: can, so some people can have growth hormone treatment to what help them just grow a tiny bit taller.
0: Yes, and then yeah. it
1: stops working.
0: Yeah. So th- this would definitely be in order to be a bit taller and maybe have better access in general. Because if you can reach things, if you, if you've got better reach, then obviously life's going to be a little bit easier for you.
1: Why does it stop working?
0: Uh, I'll go into that a little bit more later.
1: But I asked now. Yes, and
0: then you screw the You screw, screw the order up. <laughs> Let's continue.
1: This one I asked in our discussion earlier.
0: So the other treat, the other therapies available, is something called limb lengthening surgery. That hi, Duchess. Sorry, we have other dogs around us. I'm in
1: puppy stretch time. That sounds kind of scary. The image I have in my head is medieval torture devices stretching on the rack.
0: It's not quite the same, but it can still give quite a visceral response. So this can be very, very helpful for individuals. That's the first thing to point out. The, uh, the reason that someone would give it is that it can potentially add up to four inches to someone's height. Four? Yes. Though this is difficult. It is, a, it is quite a uh, highly skilled procedure. And it can also be used to correct something so if one limb is noticeably shorter than the other then you might want to lengthen that limb so that your stature is more balanced and therefore you're less likely to have other health complications and you might also use it to try and uh, straighten bowleggedness to make walking more easy however it can be controversial for people to do do this treatment probably the view of having quite a uh, large surgery to make yourself taller people view that in different ways but the procedure itself involves cutting the bone, placing pins all the way down into the bone with a frame outside of the leg that you use to just every, uh, like occasionally, whether it be every week or month or longer, you just stretch the bone a little bit further so that as the bone's growing, it doesn't fully close up. And then you pull the bones, the, the bones at the cut side a little bit further away again so that it can continue growing to try and fill that gap.
1: Ah, is that super painful?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, that that is very painful.
1: My goodness! So you're breaking the bone and letting it fill in with fill into that gap, so that there's extra length. Yes. That's crazy. Who figured that out?
0: I'm not sure, but uh, there are some risks involved with it. So you would definitely be wanting like top surgeon. To be doing this for you, uh, there is a risk of infection, and in 0.5% of cases, that infection—you um, can in 0.5% of all surgeries—there is the risk that you could get a bone infection. So, thankfully, low risk, but that's a that's a very unpleasant infection to get.
1: Sounds pretty dangerous. If something goes wrong,
0: yes, but you, you would expect to be in good hands having this procedure. You can also, there's also a risk of improper bone growth, and then also stretching of the nerves can happen. Stretching of the nerves? Because you've lengthened the entire limb, but the nerves themselves are not necessarily growing with it, so you've put strain on them, and then that can cause a lot of long-term pain, like sciatica. Oh, okay. So... It's controversial for a couple of reasons. One, just the concept of having a surgical procedure to change your height or for anything that's considered maybe aesthetic, but also because it's quite a risky it's a procedure. It's procedure that you run the risk of, you know, some quite painful complications.
1: Okay. So it's, it's something people might do if they want it, if it would really change their life. Um, by giving them better access, or by rebalancing mismatched limbs to help them have better mobility and avoid pain, but it's not something that every little person needs to or wants to have done.
0: Yes, what's more common for little people is to uh, use mobility aids.
1: Okay, so is when we talk about mobility with achondroplasia, is it or are you able to get around? Is it just about improving mobility to keep up with a much, with a world built for much taller people? Or is it because individuals struggle with their own mobility?
0: It's a bit of both. So it very much depends on how a contraplasia is affecting the individual. So, uh, for example, there is a sociology uh, professor, I believe, called so sir thomas william shakespeare who uses a wheelchair because his achondroplasia has made it very difficult for him to walk but there are other individuals like wee man who can ride a skateboard dressed up as an oompa Loompa and kick himself on the head
1: okay so a mix of things yes yeah
0: it, it's very variable this is um how achondroplasia affects someone's mobility is very much a spectrum and as a result there is a quite a large range of mobility aids available. Like what? So obviously wheelchairs is one. Uh wheeled walkers and crutches are uh quite common, particularly for people who've undergone limb lengthening surgery. It obviously helps keep someone upright during that time and for them to not put weight on the joint and you know, bend it into an improper shape. But it's also useful for children with achondroplasia who are struggling to walk and to learn to walk so it's a bit like having training wheels on a bike
1: okay because it's a i guess it would be a little bit harder to learn to walk if your body's all out of proportion
0: yeah like your legs have kind of got to work harder in some ways because you know if your legs are shorter then the mass above you is comparatively larger
1: yeah and it will mess up the center of gravity and everything
0: yeah so it can be more difficult depending on again the individual uh, pedal extenders are quite popular. Pedal? Pedal extenders. So they're like a block that you put on top of a driving pedal so that you can reach them
1: oh, okay. with shorter
0: legs. So yeah, that's a very important one that's allowed a lot of little people to be able to drive. Um so see more more independence is always always a good thing. Specialized furniture, and this isn't just furniture that's shorter or anything like that. That can also be ergonomic furniture to help support someone who has back problems uh, uh, someone has back problems cuz if you have kyphosis which can happen in achondroplasia you might need additional support uh, orthopedic insoles are common as well
1: is that to help with like bow
0: leggedness uh, some of it could be to that some of it could be just you know if you, if your limbs are uh, a little bit shorter or if one's a bit longer than the other you need a little help just to shape the feet so that your legs are at the right angle so that you're standing with the correct posture that doesn't put strain on your joints. And then the the most popular uh, mobility aid or accessibility equipment is probably a stool.
1: Just helping people get up to where they need to be.
0: Yeah, it's light, it's cheap, you can take it around with you. You know, it's pretty convenient.
1: So tell me more about the genetics of this. What type of mutation is this?
0: Okay, so for achondroplasia, it's an autosomal dominant condition.
1: Dominant? Ooh, usually we do recessive things.
0: Yeah, yeah, they are often more common. So can you remember what autosomal dominant means?
1: So that means it's not sex-linked, so both male and female individuals can have it. Mm -hmm. And it's dominant, so if either parent has it, they could pass it on. To the child, yeah. What if both parents have it? Does that mean you're kind of guaranteed a child with achondroplasia? Well,
0: this is one where you're going to have to pull out the Punnett square a little bit, but it's going to be a bit complicated for you. So there's a, an additional complication. So start with the recessive heterozygous, and then both.
1: Okay, their mental Punnett square. We have big A, little A onto the top, and big A, little A on the side. In the bottom right square, you have little a, little a, which means, oh, so that means there, you can have 25% chance of having a child without achontroplasia. Correct. Okay. And then you have a big A in all three of the other boxes, which means 75% chance of having a child with achontroplasia.
0: Normally it would be, but there's one additional complication.
1: But was I, but I was right?
0: Yes. My really? product square was right? The dominant conditions, yes.
1: Yes! Go GCSE biology!
0: But there is something different with achondroplasia. If you have two copies of the mutated gene, you actually have something that's known as recessive lethal condition. Huh? So two copies of the achondroplasia mutated gene are fatal for the child, so they die shortly after birth or beforehand due to respiratory failure from an underdeveloped rib cage.
1: What? That was a twist. Yeah.
0: So that's that's a, a very serious thing. That obviously, if you have two couples that are little people with achondroplasia, that they must consider. But obviously, you could always go for IVF and have an unaffected child or a child who has achondroplasia.
1: So if they didn't have any kind of um, genetic testing, there's a 25% chance that the child of two people with achondroplasia would die? Yes. Oh.
0: Which is obviously pretty sad.
1: This, this episode wasn't that sad. Why you got to do this to me?
0: Well, you skipped ahead a little bit. That was going to be in the more morbid area. There's a more morbid area... Well, yeah. When we do the additional conditions, Aww. but anyway, so yes, that can happen. So if you inherit it from a parent, then your parent will have been affected. So you'll know if there's a chance that you'll get achondroplasia. However, eighty percent of cases occur because of spontaneous mutation.
1: So no parent has it. Yeah. Eighty percent.
0: Yeah, and the weirdest thing about it is. We know which parent it has come from.
1: But I thought it was... It could be on either...
0: So there have been some studies on the spontaneous gene mutations for achondroplasia, and it happens exclusively from the sperm. When the sperm is being made, this fault can occur.
1: So if achondroplasia develops spontaneously, so neither of your parents had it, It's from the sperm, not the egg. Yeah. Weird.
0: Yeah, and there have been a few theories as to why this happens. One of them is that if the sperm's carrying this mutation, then it's actually more likely to fertilize the egg than an unmutated sperm.
1: So it's an advantage.
0: Yeah, it's a selective advantage for the sperm, not necessarily the individual. uh, interestingly the uh frequency of this mutation in the sperm uh increases in proportion to the age of the par- of the father really as well as in proportion to their exposure to ionizing radiation
1: what like at nuclear power plants <laughs> yes whoa so when when um at what age does this become a concern
0: uh typically it's over fifty. Okay. So you know, a decent number of parents have already had uh, already had children before the age of fifty, but obviously, plenty of people become parents when they're older, and this is something that they might need to consider.
1: That there's a higher chance of having surprise a Yeah,
0: but you know, that may not be that may not be a problem for them. So yes, that's what happens though, with the spontaneous mutation. Now, the gene itself that's affected is called the fibroblast growth factor receptor 3, or FGFR3. This gene makes a receptor that responds to growth hormones and is involved in the production of collagen and other components that are useful for the tissue in bones. Now, this gene is expressed throughout the body, and it reacts differently in different tissues. So if this thing responds to a growth hormone in your lungs, it will respond differently to how it responds to a growth hormone in your bone.
1: Okay, we've just gotten very sciencey very
0: quickly. This is to try and cut off some questions very early. Now, the mutation that causes achondroplasia increases the activity of this receptor.
1: What does that mean?
0: So in this case, the receptor's job is, once it receives... A signal is to basically tell your body, let's slow down on the growth. Let's not turn the collagen cap that you've made on this bone into bone, so that you can then lengthen it. So, can okay, bones... wait. We got to start with bone. Okay, so bone grows. Think of think of bone growing kind of like putting on layers of paint. So, if you put a layer of paint on something, it starts off wet, and then it sets, and then you can put another layer on, and you okay. keep doing that. It gets thicker and thicker and thicker. Think think of the wet bone as cartilage,
1: like the stuff that makes your nails.
0: No, the stuff that makes your ears flexible. You're thinking keratin. Oh. But so cartilage is the thing that makes your bone makes your ears all wiggly.
1: Okay, so wiggly layer.
0: And then, if this receptor is not very active, then that wiggly layer can turn into bone, and then you can make another layer of cartilage keep going, basically paint those layers. So
1: you don't want this receptor to... be too
0: active in this instance.
1: Why is it there then?
0: So it's there to tell you when growth ends. Because eventually you want to stop growing.
1: Okay, so when you've gotten all as tall as your body needs you to be... This
0: becomes more active in those areas.
1: Uh, But with this mutation... It's It's already more active. It's super active the whole time. Yeah. So that means it keeps shouting, stop, no more growth.
0: Yeah, and this is also why having two copies of the mutation is so much more dangerous, because it stops more of the growth, which means the rib cage doesn't grow, which then results in failure to breathe.
1: Okay, so if this is causing all these receptors to go, no, stop growing then how do you grow at all?
0: So it's a combination of uh, signals that tell you to grow and signals that tell you not to grow being balanced with each other. So when you have more signals that are telling you to grow then you know your bones will lengthen and things like that. But after a bit as it keeps growing and growing the signals telling you to grow will start falling and then you'll have start having more signals that are telling you not to grow. And then that keeps you paused. And at some point, you'll get to a stage where you're no longer growing.
1: Okay, so with achondroplasia you still grow, just not nearly as much as you would have done otherwise. Yeah. Okay.
0: And because, obviously, I told you this was the most common form of dwarfism, I thought I'd just state again that, yeah, you know, it really is common amongst the types of dwarfism in 70% of all cases. and the prevalence of achondroplasia is one in every twenty to thirty thousand births. So quite rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. However, you're asking me about what age was important, for children with fathers fifty years old old or more, that prevalence is one in every one thousand eight hundred and seventy five births. One thing to bear in mind is that uh Some of this might also be due to that there are less children with fathers over 50 when they're, you know, at birth, compared to the rest of the population, which might skew it a little bit. Um, But it is more common. Okay. And now we're up to the little section that you like the least. Other conditions that are caused or associated by with achondroplasia. Oh, are
1: these... Particularly bad.
0: Well, we already covered the worst one because he wanted to know what happens if you have two copies.
1: Sad, dead babies.
0: Yeah. So, another condition people with achondroplasia can get—I do emphasize "can" because it's not that common—is hydrocephalus.
1: Hydro, like water, cephalus, like brain.
0: Yeah, it's fluid buildup in the brain. So you get a buildup of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain.
1: The spinal syrup?
0: Yes, from our previous episode, the thing that you likened to maple syrup.
1: Okay, too much spine syrup in your brain. Yeah. That doesn't seem good.
0: No, it it, it increases pressure in the skull, which can then cause headaches, double vision, poor balance, personality changes, seizures, crushed brain tissue.
1: Whoa, that escalated quickly.
0: Well, like with a lot of that, it's the more pressure builds up, the more serious the the uh, issues become. But there is a relatively straightforward treatment for it, which is to insert a shunt that drains the fluid out of the brain.
1: Yay, we're good at draining brains here, up. Yeah,
0: but you know, so that's that's an unpleasant complication, but it's manageable. And you know, that's not the worst way to end this. And we're going to go. And the next part to the very interesting history of the Ooh. History. Yeah, it's history time.
1: Tell me all the things!
0: Okay, so there's a decent record of dwarfism in ancient Egypt. Ooh! As I to say, with most cases being achondroplasia, and with actually decent descriptions of the uh, physical likeness of quite a few of the individuals involved, we know that ach- achondroplasia was around in back as the Old Kingdom with written records.
1: I guess that makes sense, if we know it's something that pops up spontaneously all the time. Yes.
0: So, for example, in the, this I think it's the Stella S T E L L E S-T-E-L-E, uh, they depict the court dwarf Head, who died with his master, and this was found in the uh, tomb of the Egyptian pharaoh Den, which dates back to 2850 BCE.
1: So, a depiction of a little person in a tomb? Yeah. Wow.
0: And, uh, in the Old Kingdom of Egypt, which is a little bit later than that, so that's, that's already pretty far back. Uh, so between 2575 and 2134 BCE, little people were often jewelers and linen attendants, and they were given a certain degree of reverence due to their resemblance to dwarven gods.
1: Oh so they they weren't outcast by Egyptian society?
0: No, no. There was a certain level of uh, of respect treated to them, though they wouldn't necessarily be in, in positions of command. Yeah, those all
1: sounds sound like more servant positions.
0: Yes, and female little people were Often nurses and midwives, and some of that's to do with uh, the resemblance to the god Bez. Now, you saw the statue I showed you earlier. Bez it has a typically proportioned head and torso for that sort of Hellenistic style statue, but has shortened limbs, so very much looks like you know, like an individual with achondroplasia. And Bez is the god of uh, fertility and also protector during childbirth. So for a culture that believed that a god had that role, individuals who looked like that god were obviously considered quite important to be involved in the process of childbirth.
1: Wow, that's really cool. Do we know anything about how little people were treated in
0: other cultures? We do, but I've got I've still got a little bit more about ancient Egypt. Oh, So there was another god called Atar, who it might be worth viewing him kind of like a primordial god. So he's, in some cases he was worshipped as a creator, in the sense that he formed man from clay, and in other cases created the universe, but was never like the, the head god of the pantheon like Ra or Amun. And in certain cases the tar has been depicted as a dwarf as well. Uh and in a lot of cases the tar is known to be a um like a smithing and workshop god and as a result there are a lot of statues near the valley of the pharaohs where all the uh these all the smiths and tradesmen worked uh to make the tombs or the pharaohs. So there's quite a few depictions of him in this dwarf Oh,
1: okay. And do we know kind of how common this is? Like, how how often are we seeing depictions of little people in Egyptian art?
0: There's actually a lot of depictions in Egyptian art. Those, uh, in 50 tombs.
1: 50? That's an awful lot.
0: Yeah, for a group that would normally been overlooked, that is incredible. And I'm just going to pull up the uh, article that I will definitely be pointing to later as well. Um, but it ha- but um, there, there's a lot of representations, but also there were some instructions or uh, expectations of practice in, the, uh, uh, in ancient Egypt during the, the reign of Amenhotep III, which told people... And this is the uh, the transliterated quote. Do not jeer at a blind man nor tease a dwarf, neither interfere with the condition of a cripple. Do not taunt a man who is in the hand of God, nor scowl at him for his errors. So there was definitely, a cert- certainly in certain periods of uh, ancient Egyptian history, a lot, m- a very tolerant view of people with different abilities and a certain level of respect for people with dwarfism.
1: That is so cool.
0: It was it was nice to see that, but uh, as you're asking, what happens when you get into other ones? The <laughs> depictions don't always end up being quite as nice afterwards. There's some quite lurid descriptions of little people as basically being shorter stature, larger penis, and always trying to uh, chase down women during uh, bacchanalias or whatever other events you want to call them, but there are some quite lurid descriptions of people with dwarfism in ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, And they can be quite derogatory and often heavily sexualized. Oh! I also found some descriptions of dwarfism, most likely achondroplasia, in uh, a few other countries as well, including, uh, so, Sima Qian, who was a Han Dynasty historian, wrote about Yuzan, who was a court dwarf under the first emperor of Qin, I say in quotes, because this stuff's a bit hard to define, that he reigned from 259 to 210 BCE in China. And uh, there was this uh, uh, court, in quotes, court dwarf who was well documented at the time. So he must have been quite liked by the emperor.
1: Okay, but again, in a position of like serving and entertainment.
0: Yes, and that's what most of these cases are. There is another dwarven god I found, or god of sorts. So in Japan, Sakuna Bikona is a Shinto kami. So a kami is a divine spirit in uh, Shinto, and he was he was a kami of the onsen. So those hot springs that are really nice and pleasant in Japan. Uh, agriculture, healing, magic, brewing sake, and knowledge.
1: What a guy! So
0: honestly, he sounds like the best kami of the lot. <laughs> and I found some uh, specific historical cases of uh, people with dwarfism who likely had a contraplasia, who were quite interesting as well. Ooh. So there is Shenum hotep So I think you can guess where he's from.
1: Ancient Egypt?
0: Yep. So he was the chief of perfumes during the 5th Dynasty of Egypt. So there's thoughts that he was working between the 25th and 24th century BCE. Okay. So that's quite long back to have someone that they even named and had a pretty prestigious role.
1: And this was named in a tomb?
0: Yes. He actually had his own burial area. Cool. And there was also... Uh, and this one I thought was quite cool. There's a painting of Sebastian de Mora, who in 1644. Now, Sebastian de Mora was a court jester of Philip IV of Spain. But when you look at the painting, he looks a lot like Tyrion Lannister in the TV Game of Thrones series. And I'm honestly curious as if if there are any. Kind of conspiracy theories going around like they have been for Keanu Reeves with all those old paintings that look quite similar to him, as to whether or not Peter Dinklage is immortal. <laughs> you heard it in your first folks. <laughs> so yeah, we don't normally do conspiracy theories, but please, Peter Dinklage being immortal would be so good for the soul.
1: <laughs> okay, so we can see little people documented in cultures throughout history, and it's really cool that in um, some of these ancient cultures, they're linked to depictions of deities as well.
0: Yeah, th- there was actually some level of respect at some times.
1: And then I guess we get to more recently?
0: Yeah, um, that the, like, r- rocketing through the modern history, you just go to the low point where the Holocaust, they were victims of it alongside a lot of other people with disabilities, and now we're at a, like, we're at a relative turning point compared to that. Let's say where we. Yeah. You well,
1: know, I really wanted to touch on entertainment and.
0: Okay, well then.
1: So, in lots of those examples, you've been talking about little people used in serving roles and as entertainment, mm-hmm. and I think that's interesting because that's still what we've seen in Western culture in you know? all. Uh, for the last few centuries. Yeah. Lots of examples of little people used in traveling circuses or in the quote unquote freak shows of the late 20th century. Um, where, you know, it's, I think, I think we've, where they were treated really quite negatively and often treated as property of other people and just, not given the respect of human beings.
0: Yeah. And I'd say even today, um, little people are very popular for entertainment. So it's not necessarily necessarily the same derogatory uh, perspective as it has previously been. But Wee Man, obviously well-known entertainer. Vernon Troy, also known as Mini-Me. You've also got uh, Peter Dinklage, well-known actor. Warwick Davis another little person who's a well known actor uh you've got Brad Williams the comedian who gave an interesting description of uh, that little people are like human bacon they just make everything better <laughs> and i do think that we as a society do have a fascination with little people
1: yeah definitely so i i think it's really interesting to hear about the history and see the kind of common theme there of of often treating little people as not fully human and as just an object of mockery but now we realize that we need to deliberately you know not do that in that little people can live their full lives in whatever job they want and be treated as full humans
0: we're progressing we're, we're definitely progressing but i think that there's still there's still a lot to be do- hi banjo sorry the dog's just yawning. There is a lot to be done still.
1: Yeah, always more to do. It would be really interesting to hear from from a little person about their perspective on dealing with society now. Um, so, you know, if you have any stories you'd like to share with us or a particular source we should go check out, let us know. Yeah, definitely. So back to the genetic history of this. What was going on? Where's this mutation come from?
0: So, we don't really know because most cases come from a random mutation. However, it is interesting when looking at this that people have been able to, uh, they've been able to determine the prevalence of achondroplasia at birth found in the cases of Neanderthals. Sorry, what? we, We found achondroplasia in Neanderthals. Ooh. And it is estimated from a long-term study to be 1.3 per 100,000 live births, which is obviously less common than in people. But it, it gives you a couple additional theory, uh, a couple additional kind of additional hypotheses that, for people to explore, which is that, uh, so based on region, Neanderthals have been extinct for up to 40,000 years. It's between 30 and 40, depending on the area. They're thought to have uh, stayed around a little bit longer in Asia. But humans and Neanderthals diverged 800,000 years ago. Now, if we thought that the, let's say, the propensity to get that mutation came from Neanderthals, and we got it from admixture, so, for example, if it was more common in people who had Neanderthal heritage, then you would think that the origins were at least 40,000 years ago. But if that uh, propensity to have that random mutation Came from a common ancestor of human and Neanderthals, then we could say that achondroplasia has probably been around for over eight hundred thousand years.
1: Wow, that was a very long explanation. That lost me about halfway through.
0: It needed that description, though.
1: Um, and so so we think this mutation shows up all all throughout our evolution.
0: Well, through human. Evolution, it would seem. So I looked into achondroplasia in other uh, in other species, and it does exist in dogs. So the Dachshund and the Corgi.
1: That's why they have such little legs.
0: Yes. However, it's a different gene that's mutated. So it's another one of the um, FGFR genes that's mutated. So FGFR4 rather than FGFR3. So it's not a common ancestor. Otherwise so corgis been...
1: are just the little people of doggos?
0: Yeah, in many ways.
1: Wow. That's why their legs are so small. I love them. But
0: yeah, so... It looks like achondroplasia, like this kind of genetic achondroplasia, is exclusively a human thing. And it could be as old as however... Like, we're not sure how old it is. But from the looks of things... Could be hundreds of thousands of years old
1: wow okay so then when did we figure out the genetics of it
0: see this condition has been identified for thousands of years that's very clear from the written history but it wasn't until 1967 that what we'd not call the sort of standard clinical characterization of achondroplasia was published so what we'd think of as, you know, these proportions, these health uh, these health complications would mean achondroplasia. That wasn't published until the late sixties.
1: Oh, okay. So it wasn't until the nineteen hundreds where we were even looking into what different types of morphism there were.
0: Yeah, I mean that was that was when we could get like an accurate description of it. I okay. think it's probably a better way of putting it. And that's when the term achondroplasia was probably first used around the sixties. Okay. The mutation, however, was discovered in nineteen ninety four. Interestingly though, it wasn't found intentionally. It was found while looking for trying to find the mutation related to Huntington's disease. It's a it's a it's a good accident yeah. to discover something else that can help people. So yeah, I think that's um that's it on the history really. Okay.
1: And usually we discuss where are we now with treatments but on this one
0: we have a little as of 2019 there was tentative evidence to um to support an experimental drug called visorotide and what it does is it increases the rate of growth in people with achondroplasia by inhibiting the activity of that faulty receptor
1: oh wow
0: obviously there's still trials going on but this might be something that people, if they so choose, might be able to take to increase their growth to some extent.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious to see what that would do. Otherwise, there's also a phase two trial for a a, a drug called Infigratinib. God, this bloody hard to say. Um, which is an FGFR one to three inhibitor. So it inhibits those three different types of receptors. But it's a phase two, so they're working out the effective dose um, to give people. So they're, they're quite far in.
1: Wow, so these treatments could be used for children who are still developing?
0: Yes, yeah, that would be where you'd use it.
1: How interesting.
0: So it, it's interesting that um, there are some things that you could use to, I wouldn't necessarily say it's to give make people of average height but it's definitely help help with the growth and might it might lessen some of the complications as a result yeah otherwise i think something that's interesting to note is that when we release this it's only going to be a few weeks after that we turn to october which is dwarfism awareness month oh cool so
1: what are the myths and stigmas around this i imagine there's quite a few
0: Yes, there are. So I've got of narrow it down to some important ones. Uh, the first big myth to address is that uh, some people believe that dwarfism is a disease.
1: No, it's just it's something, something that is.
0: Yeah, it, it's a quirk of nature. It's just, it's, it's just like how we have different eye colours. It's just a different type of variability. And that's why we've been calling it a genetic anomaly.
1: And not a disease. Yeah,
0: because... It's, it's not thought that way by anyone who lives with it. It's not uh, so. There's like there's no sense in giving it that name. Another myth is that those with dwarfism are all healthy despite their stature. Now, some are healthy with the stature, but that's not necessarily true because you can have some complications, such as I mentioned earlier, with poor muscle tone and back pain being quite common.
1: Yeah. So. So people with achondroplasia are still facing, or may still be facing difficulties that you don't know about?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Another myth, which... This this one threw me off a little bit, but um, some people believe that dwarfism is a type of mental retardation. Really? I think this is due to the difference in head shape, being so, like some people just thinking that, and also the very condescending view some people have of the disabled.
1: Yeah, and I guess because you like, I'd mentally group it with issues with development.
0: Yeah. And so it... you
1: can see how that mistake
0: would be made. Yeah, but it's definitely not the case. Achondroplasia, you know, dwarfism, they don't really affect any, any of your mental faculty, faculties at all. Final myth to address is that dwarfism can be, in quotes, fixed by treatment. For a lot of people, the view is that there is nothing to fix. So that's the first thing to address there. But even so, treatments don't instantly make people tall. They can address some health problems, or they might be able to make someone a little taller, which might make certain aspects of their life easier. But um, but um they're that...
1: not magically going to be able to become a six-foot something.
0: Yeah, exactly. And also, the, the con. Comp- uh, I thought, just go back to the dwarfism as a disease one. I mentioned that you know, a lot of comedians have done stand-up routines on the fact that it's not one. And, you know, it's not like someone can run up to you and scratch you and you suddenly start shrinking. And that, That's genuinely part <laughs> of someone's not routine. It is
1: contagious.
0: <laughs> but interestingly, and I wonder if some of it's to do with that, but there is something called achondrophobia.
1: Being scared of?
0: Yes, some people have an irrational fear of little people and one of them is the actor John Stamos. Yeah, and he's best known for uh starring in Full House. Oh, okay. So yeah. He has um he has achondrophobia and uh some of his colleagues have used that to great effect, and honestly if you want to hear how that ends, I would listen to some of Brad Williams stand up because it's so funny.
1: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, is that everything?
0: Uh yeah, I thought the, the we're uh, getting to the end of the episode, so there's just a couple of things I want to say. Uh, one is that, obviously, if you want to learn more, particularly during uh, Dwarfism Awareness Month, you should follow some advocates for little people, such as Warwick Davis, the actor, and Sir uh, Thomas William Shakespeare. As for reading, I think Dwarfs in Ancient Egypt by Chihira Cosma is the best one to read for that. It's really interesting. It shows um, there are images of the actual hieroglyphs and statues.
1: Lots of good statues. It's
0: really cool to see. And, you know, they also tell you which museums you can go to to find them, which is really nice. Um, Otherwise, uh, a good website to go onto as well is littlepeopleuk.org. This one has been advocated by Warwick Davis himself, and he's a spokesman for it. But it's got a lot of information as well as uh, where you can access different different, uh, mobility and accessibility equipment. The little people.
1: Cool. Yeah. I want to reiterate that we are speaking from a, pe- a place of research but ignorance, where, you know, we don't live the lives of little people. We don't know people personally with it. So if we've misspoken um, or got anything wrong, please let us know and we're happy to correct anything. We're doing our best to be sensitive to a topic that really affects people's lives. So with that, thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, comments, general enthusiasm for the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at GeneticDrift1. You can also email us at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com or join us in our Facebook group to get involved in the discussion.
0: Yeah. And on that note, I'd just like to say that the music for this episode is... Recorded and produced as with every other episode by William Kitchener Music so please check it out and uh, withhold your judgment from people because you can't see the genes so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye.
1: Bye.